Welcome to St. Vincent de Paul Louisville's podcast with arms wide open. I'm your host, Executive Director and CEO, Dave Kelsey. St. Vincent de Paul Louisville serves individuals and families in need, including those who are houseless, living in poverty, suffering from addiction, enduring mental illness, or experiencing acute economic crisis. Founded in 1853, St. Vincent de Paul Louisville houses, feeds, and supports those most in need with compassion and dignity. Our podcast series focuses on important matters related to our mission and will include a diverse and interesting group of guests covering a multitude of topics. Today's guest is Greg Colbert. Greg is an associate professor of real estate in the University of Washington's College of Built Environments and has a PhD in public affairs from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs and Masters in Social Work, both at the University of Minnesota, as well as an MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University and a BA in economics and management from Albion College. Greg's research interests include housing policy, housing affordability, and homelessness. He started a career in academia after spending about 17 years in the private sector. Greg is the author of the acclaimed book entitled, Homelessness is a Housing Problem. Greg, welcome. I'm, I, I can't tell you how happy I am that you're able to take the time and really been looking forward to our chat ever since uh, we were able to attend your talk at the Kentucky Center for the Arts. Great. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Thank you. As an introduction to this, I, I'm really curious about uh, kind of your journey to, to where you are today, just as a, as for your own information. I spent about four decades in public accounting, uh, two of those decades with with Arthur Anderson and then uh, with Ernst & Young and retired and uh, shifted gears and joining the nonprofit world and now St. Vincent de Paul. And, and I have to say that, you know, it's been the hardest thing I've ever done, to be honest. Even, the, even in that world of, you know, global consulting and all that, this is really the hardest thing I've ever done. The notion of being entrepreneurial and the notion of, of just kind of, you know, not necessarily knowing exactly what's around the corner uh, as, and, and also just the, the, the reason as to what we do and, and why we do it. And I noticed in your bio that you spent about a decade and a half, a little bit more than that, including some stints with Goldman Sachs and private equity and financial firms and, and even one that you founded before entering the world of academia. If you could just spend a few minutes letting our listeners know about that journey and, and how you found your, your way into the world of academia from that kind of intense financial side of things. And, you know, was there a shift in, in, in your own personal why or purpose or? I'd always had an interest in being a professor. I have um, academics in my family. And so it was something that I had in the back of my mind for a long time. But um, I got my first job out of undergrad as an investment maker at Goldman and um, worked my tail off and um you know, learned a ton. It was an amazing experience and and actually thought about going and getting my PhD in economics right after that. And and one of the partners grabbed me and was like, are you crazy? And I was like, oh, well, maybe I am. And so I stayed on the path and then was almost 40 years old. And I was like, okay, if I want to make a change, I should probably do so sooner rather than later. Um, and And it was a demanding job. And was ready to be done with that and ready to try something else. And so with a support, a supportive spouse and kids that were young, I, I pulled the ripcord in 2012 and spent five years getting my PhD and then was fortunate enough to land here at, at UW. Um, you know, the motivation for studying housing was really developed over time. I spent a lot of time working with nonprofits and other organizations when I was in the private sector around housing. I think housing is fundamental. Without housing, it 
undermines everything else that we really care about in life. And so that was really important. Um, actually, coach, we were talking about Chicago before we started the broadcast here. I coached Little League Baseball at Cabrini Green in Chicago for two summers in the late 90s before the towers came down. And so that was a profound experience, given that I'm from the suburbs of Minneapolis. Uh, obviously, these boys had a very different upbringing than I did. And, um, you know, housing was central to the story of Cabrini Green and the and uh, the displacement of those families when those towers came down. And so, um, you know, it had always been in the back of my mind that if I did have the chance to make a transition to academia, that housing would be something that I'd like to study. Well, we're all we're all so fortunate that you made you made that shift. I, you know, I have to say that attending your talk at the Kentucky Center for the Arts, and thank you for doing that, really shifted my own thinking on 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 the topic. And what we do at St. Vincent de Paul is house and feed those most in need and support those most in need with uh, compassion and dignity. And, and, you know, a lot of the folks that we serve uh, suffer from mental illness, uh, substance abuse, fleeing domestic violence. Uh, and, and, and to really shift that thinking away from those things and recognizing that the reality is the reason that they're at our doorstep is a lack of housing. And, and, and so I'd like for you to chat a bit about your, your book, homelessness is a housing problem and and you know tell us about the impetus for that and and just the basic premise uh, of the book and i encourage our readers to please go out and find homelessness as a housing problem and order that today uh and read it it, it really has shifted my thinking and certainly the staff our staff here's thinking as well on so many topics uh great yeah thank you for for the plug i appreciate it yeah the motivation for the book was really an observation that i had in seattle uh which is my home now uh, attending meetings about housing and homelessness. And if you haven't been to Seattle recently, we have a terrible, terrible, terrible housing crisis and homelessness problem here. Uh, and it keeps getting worse every day, unfortunately. Um, it was my observation that we just as a community didn't understand what was driving this crisis. And a lot of our time, attention, and resources went was focused on these precipitating events, Dave, that you just mentioned, whether it's domestic violence or addiction or mental health. And all these things are, are extremely important and deserve time and attention. Um, but there are people experiencing domestic violence and people who are addicted and people are, who are mentally ill in every community in the United States. And some of those communities have really hard, large rates of homelessness and other places don't. And so to me, understanding why some places have a huge population of, of people experiencing homelessness will highlight the core driver of this crisis. And so the fundamental question we seek to answer is why are rates of homelessness so high in some places and not others? And what we do is we try to draw a distinction between the root cause, which we believe is access to housing, and these other precipitating events that get a lot of um, uh, attention, uh, poverty, uh, mental illness, uh, addiction, uh, domestic violence, relational breakdown, et cetera. I, I love the analogy in, in, in the book of, of musical chairs. Could you just share for our listeners the, the the analogy that you draw there between musical chairs and homelessness? It's just a wonderful way to picture. Uh, you know, the purpose of this this metaphor or analogy, whatever it is, we need an English teacher to clarify that for us. But the the idea was to really draw the distinction between a root cause and a precipitating event. And so imagine a game of musical chairs with with 10 friends, um, the leader. Um, uh, start some music and the and they walk around in a circle. The leader pulls one chair out. You now have 10 people in nine chairs. And when the music stops, everyone scrambles for a chair. And in this case, Mike loses the game. Um, and Mike had an ankle injury. And so he's on crutches. And so when the scramble ensued, he wasn't able to find a chair. And so, you know, if ESPN, I'm a big sports fan, if ESPN were there covering the sporting event and they interviewed Mike afterwards and said, Mike, why'd you lose the game? He'd say, I had a bad ankle. 
And everyone said, well, yeah, Mike had a bad ankle, therefore he lost the game. And, but if we take a step back and say, why didn't Mike end up with a chair? It's because we didn't have 10 chairs. If we'd had 10 chairs, Mike would have found a chair. Would have taken him longer. He would have hobbled over and found a chair. And, and I think this is really what's going on in, especially in coastal cities like Seattle right now, which is when you don't have sufficient housing, people who are vulnerable in some way, shape or form are the ones who lose this game. And, but yet when we see someone on the street, we're focused on the ankle injury, or in this case, mental illness or physical disability or addiction and say, well, of course, Joe lost the game. Joe's addicted. Um, as opposed to saying, if we'd had enough housing units, Joe, even with his addiction and his struggles would have found housing as, as Joe's do in other communities around the United States. So that's really the reason for the, the, the metaphor. And, and I'm glad that it resonated with you. Well, it did. And, and I, you know, and, and so for us here at St. Vincent de Paul, we, we, we really work hard to lower barriers. Uh, for um, individuals to, to to seek help, and so the the notion of housing first and and trauma informed care of, of not saying, well, what did you do? You must have done something, as opposed, to, what happened to you? Yep, That's That's a, right. I mean, it's, it's 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 a fundamentally different question to ask, and um, you know, for us certainly, we're serving uh, very chronic cases, and um, you know, doing do, doing so though. Uh, with with a, a very clear focus of why we're doing it, uh, and 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 just knowing that there's no other place for the folks that we serve to go, uh, we've been doing it for now, Greg, for 170 years, and and we'll be doing it. I mean, I'd love for us to go out of business because there's no need, but yep. the reality is, is you know, we got to keep focused on this and keep doing what we do, and it kind of gets me to to another question, you know, the choice that that we've made in our society. Um, you know, that has uh, forced really an experience of, of trauma of homelessness on folks before they can actually get housing assistance. So that notion of becoming homeless, that notion, we did a podcast, if, if, if you have a chance on our website, we did a podcast um, with um, Eviction Lab. Mm -hmm. uh, we recently met as well with uh, the CEO of USA Cares that focuses on eliminating eviction for uh, veterans, uh, you know, it, it's 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 that trigger in the veterans community that leads in many cases to uh, suicide, veteran suicide. What I'm getting at here is that, you know, clearly we haven't invested in, in homeless uh, prevention like like we should have uh, in the past. Uh, can you talk a, a little bit about maybe why we have, as a society have made that choice and what it would take for us to change course to help prevent folks from even experiencing homelessness to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say um, I have two answers to your question. One is um, that building housing is expensive. And so I think there's been generally a reluctance to devote the resources necessary to ensure that there's sufficient housing for everyone. At a more granular level, the reason why we've not invested in prevention as much as we have in the crisis response is um, is because it's a bit of a needle in a haystack exercise. And the research has demonstrated that you can have a population of people who are at risk of homelessness, yet a relatively small percentage of them actually will experience homelessness. And so what studies have demonstrated is that if you do provide prevention resources to all of those at-risk households, you will, by definition, provide resources to someone who ultimately wasn't going to receive or wasn't going to experience homelessness. And therefore, from a policy analysis perspective, that is an inefficient intervention. And because we have not demonstrated an ability to highlight who is specifically going to experience um, homelessness, 
um, we have shifted our resources and attention to the crisis response of once people enter homelessness. The problem with that decision, and I understand the, the argument for efficiency and the need for efficiency in using dollars um, as effectively as possible. The problem is, is that once people slip into homelessness, all sorts of bad things happen. There's trauma associated with experiencing homelessness, whether you're in shelter or on the street, um, and getting out is much harder and it has huge um, negative impacts, lifetime impacts for both adults and children once you've experienced homelessness. And so my hope would be that as we shift the narrative around homelessness, that we will make investments in housing such that we see far fewer people slipping into that crisis response and ending up on your doorstep. And I'm grateful for the crisis response. As I said in the talk, all over the, in my talks all around the country, what you are doing and, you, and your peers around the country, you're literally saving lives. Um, and ideally, we wouldn't have a need for this crisis response because people are finding housing before they get there. And so in the interim, while we're working our way out of this, we need to continue to have a robust crisis response and serve people in um, the greatest need of their lifetime, um, but also making sure that we're making investments in housing that's affordable such that we radically reduce the number of people falling into homelessness. And those are big asks and there are big dollars associated with that, which is why I don't know that we um, have done as good a job as we could because political will and resources are at times lacking. Yeah, well, you know, it's it, and again, you know, recently we, we've celebrated in this community a, a focus on a, a additional resources going into affordable housing. But it's really it's millions. It's not billions. Yep. That's right. I mean, the, the answer is billions. And, exactly and so while right. you celebrate that, at least it's directionally moving in the right direction. But the community has to recognize that we're not talking about millions, it's billions. And and, and it gets me to to another question because, you know, the, the you know, the whole notion of the best time to plant a tree was yesterday. Certainly the best time to start doing what we need to do from an affordable housing uh, perspective was yesterday uh, as well. Here here in Louisville, where, you know, you just visited um, the number of units that uh, the coalition is saying is needed is about 30,000. It's a big number. Uh, and, you know, to your point about political will or the lack thereof, it's just been kind of an issue that's been kicked down the road for probably decades. So, again, with, with your experience in, in the research that you've done and certainly your experience in, in the private sector, I know you've got a view on this, but, you know, what kind of investment would it take for a city like ours to avoid the fate of Seattle or LA. I'm going to be going to Austin this weekend for a, a wedding. And you mentioned Austin kind of as a canary in a coal mine, I think in your, in, in your speech. Yeah, absolutely. So what would you say to the kind of investment that it would take now for a community like ours, when I'm talking about numbers like that, to avoid the fate of some of these, these other cities that clearly are, are, are suffering and, and you know, supported by the data that you have? Yeah, well, as you said, the investments are significant, but I want to be clear that those investments don't all need to come from the public sector, that there is private market investment that will help here in the sense that um, we want to make sure that people who can afford market rate housing can find market rate housing and make sure that they're not down renting into um, housing that might be accessible to, to people with middle or lower incomes. And so the total housing investment will be significant. A fraction of that will need to be subsidized by nonprofit, by philanthropic sources, or most likely from the government sector. And those numbers are in the billions for sure. And But when we think about uh, people get very nervous when we start to talk about billion-dollar investments, when you look at the budgets of states and cities, they're huge. 
They're huge. And so carving out, at least in the state of Washington, carving out 15 or $20 billion for housing is almost a rounding error in the state budget. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's easy and it doesn't mean that it's going to happen tomorrow and those fights will be intense. Uh, but the point is, is that the scale of, of state and federal budgets are, are pretty immense. And therefore, finding the billions for housing um, is... I, I would never say it's easy, but it's absolutely plausible. We're not talking about something that's completely implausible here. And I, say, I would say the same thing for your community. And so if you need 30,000 housing units, the question is what number of those can be provided by um, the private market? And that'll be a significant percentage is my guess. I don't know the specifics in your market, so I, I can't speak to that specifically. And then you start to think about when we talk about workforce housing, what types of subsidy might be able to uh, be provided such that a school teacher or a barista can afford that. That's not fully subsidized because they've got income and they can pay. And then there's going to be a subset of people who will have very low incomes and who for many, you know, potentially their whole lives will struggle to pay. And that's really a question of then where does that housing come from? And that's where we're going to see larger public sector investment. And while that will be expensive, the counterpoint is, is that not having housing for people is really expensive. We are all paying for for the crisis of homelessness right now through multiple systems, through um, the emer emergency rooms, police and fire, streets and sanitation, the public library system. All of these systems are bearing the cost of homelessness right now. And if we actually had housing, you would see cost reductions elsewhere. And so um, what we need is, is larger structural thinking um, in order to get there. And, and to date, we haven't done a good job of that, unfortunately. Yeah, so there's no, that's great that you bring that up. I know the Coalition uh, for the Homeless has on their website um, a, a page that that kind of shows some bar charts that shows the cost of having folks, you know, and the services, you know, yep. corrections, healthcare, mental health services, rehab, recovery, shelter, and services compared to someone being housed. Yes. On the other side of it, I've talked to a lot of the folks here that I've got relationships with in the, in the hospitals. You know, health, being housed is healthcare. Yes. You know, it's healthcare. I mean, it, it, you know, the whole notion of the, the service for the folks that are unhoused in the ERs, you know, it's just not sustainable. And it is about the business case that needs to be made, but to have it identified like you're used to seeing, uh, you know, from your uh, career in, in financial services and mine uh, in, in the audit and, and regulatory side of things. But I also see a need in the business community. And, and I, I feel like I'm in this position maybe for partly this reason is to kind of tell the story from a perspective that I didn't see this part of Louisville before. I mean, I lived here for almost 37 years in that world, you know, living on the 22nd floor of one of the buildings downtown. And I never saw this part of Louisville. I'll admit it. I just never really saw it. Mm -hmm. And, and so to be able to also in this world of, of building a business case and recognizing why it makes sense from a cost dollar sense perspective, is it possible to build empathy? You know, what does it take to build also that notion of empathy that it's just the right thing to do? And so when you think of developers, I got to imagine that the profit margin, you know, on some of these these kinds of strategies for developers is is it's going to be impacted. There's going to be there's going to have to be those developers that also have a bring a sense of mission and empathy to to, to the game. Is it pie in the sky? Am I, am I wishing for something that may never happen? Or what do you think? I, I guess the way I would answer your question, and this, if, if I'm dodging it, you can call me out on this, is that people will be brought to this battle for different reasons. And I'm okay with that. 
I think there will be people who come to this battle saying, I believe that this is a moral outrage and therefore I want to devote my time, attention and resources to this issue because I think it's the right thing to do. Fantastic. Come on. There will be other people who might come to this saying, I can actually make some money building housing for people with moderate incomes. All right, come on in. There will be other people saying this is an outrage that we're spending this much money in, in um, criminal justice and emergency room and there's a business case for doing this. Therefore, I want to make these investments. And I say, come on in. And so I don't know that people need to have a uniform motivation for being there. My hope is that they end up at the table and and be part of part of the solution here. And and I think what we've seen is that um, in a place like Seattle, you can't avoid it. So you avoid it in Louisville because the scale of the problem is not what it is here. The person working at Arthur, well, there's not Arthur Anderson anymore, at Ernst and Young now in Seattle, can't avoid it. And so as much as they may want to, and they're serving their corporate clients, they are seeing it every day when they walk into their office tower. And so when the scale gets to the level that it is in Seattle, no one is insulated from it. And therefore, that's why it is the number one and number two issues, housing and homelessness and the top issues in the state of Washington right now. And so um, to a certain extent, that crisis creates an opportunity because no one can put their head in the sand. Right. Yeah. Well, certainly the political will and, and strong leadership, not just in government, but also in business. And in businesses like ours, it's going to be necessary to bring all that together. And I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I really don't care why people come to the table as long as they come to the table to help us do what we need to do. Yep. So that that leads me to my last question. You know, we're looking for advice. You know, we're, we're an agency that is in that kind of that space of, of helping folks to get off the street and ultimately get into permanent housing and, and stay there. You know, we don't have the capacity or the resources um, as a developer to actually build new housing. I mean, we might have a little capacity to add units for emergency shelter, domestic transitional housing, those kinds of things. What advice would you give us to kind of be that voice? How can we help the public focus that, what we're talking about here on, on the need to, to build more housing, but also recognize that we're still relevant in this. We're still relevant in this whole ecosystem of ultimately getting people housed. I really like the idea of you as a leader saying, you know, if we all do our jobs, we are out of a job. And that would be a wonderful thing for our community. And um, you need us. And there are a lot of people who need us. And so we want your support to continue our important life-saving work. Um, but the idea here is not for us to continue to serve people uh, at the very lowest point in their lives is to intervene upstream. And that then will require a lot of other people to act. We will be here as a safety net while you figure that out, but we can't just rely on this and then ignore this constant flow of people into this situation. And so to a certain extent, kind of bolstering support by saying, we're here, we will continue to support and love people, um, but you also need to get your act together um, such that we, we intervene. And that's not us. We don't have the capacity on the scale to do that. Um, we're gonna do what we do and you need to do what you're doing. And if you don't, then we're gonna be coming back to you asking for more money because the need will continue to grow. And that's not in anyone's interest, right? You're not building an empire. We don't want our social services agencies to build empires because that means that we as a society are doing something wrong would be the way that I would position that. And it's kind of interesting because there are some people who get very wedded to their organization. We want our organization to grow. The problem is if your organization is growing, that means we as a society are failing. And so it does require some maturity and humility around one's role in the system to say, we we serve an important role here, but we ideally wouldn't exist in perpetuity. 
And a lot of organizations don't think that way. (laughs) Yeah, I I do. And sometimes people take a pause and look at me and say, well, what what, what? What are you saying? And and I really, truly believe that. But again, it's, it's going to take time and, and it's going to take lots of different folks in the community to be able to get around this. And I'm just fortunate to have been exposed to it at, at this time in my life. And I'm thankful for you and, and for you making the transitions that you have over the years and, and being that voice. You know, I was, I was telling somebody, it was at a board meeting yesterday. We were talking about uh, you, you coming in and, and speaking at the Kentucky center. And, um, I was I was quoting I, I believe it was Patrick Moynihan that was famous for saying you you know you're entitled to your own opinion fine have your own opinion but you're not entitled to your own set of facts yep and when you lay the facts out you know someone could still sit there and say you know what I don't want to believe it whatever that's your choice but the reality is these are the facts and this is what we're dealing with and until you lay that on the table and understand what that path forward is you're never going to get there just like anything else Right. And the other problem that we have, we're not going to be able to solve it until we know what we're solving for. And um, I think the notion of being solving for just the lack of housing, uh, as, as opposed to all those other things that we talk about that we're trying to help with, uh, you know, in terms of the mental health and substance abuse and, and, and all those other things is the right way to look at it. So I'm appreciative of, of, of your work and we'll continue to follow you and hope that we can continue to stay in touch. That sounds great. I'd be happy to do that. And uh, thanks for your good work on the ground there, Dave. Thanks, Greg. I really appreciate it. Greg, what are you doing now that you're going to be, uh, I mean, the book's done and you're, I think, finishing up the book tour. So what's kind of the next focus for you in terms of- Well, I've got, I've got another book coming out on affordable housing. It's kind of affordable housing 101. Um, and the book tour is going a little longer than I thought. So I'm going to continue to be on the road uh, throughout the summer and in the fall, which is, which is great. So, um, and then I got to teach some classes and, you know, take care of things here at uh, the University of Washington. So I, I won't lack for things to do. I'll stay busy. Pay the bills, yeah. yeah, I'm actually going to be in Minneapolis October 8th um, for a friend of mine who lives up there. We're going to be, we're going to go to the Vikings Chiefs game. And uh, buddy of mine is the managing partner of EY's uh, Minneapolis office. He's a Buffalo native as I, I am kind of see my little yeah i see the bills there. logo back there yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, but we're going to come up there and i'm going to enjoy cheering for the vikings and not the chiefs yeah exactly exactly thanks so much for listening to st vincent de paul louisville's monthly podcast with arms wide open we hope your time with us was well worth it you can catch us on the 15th of every month so be sure to check out our next conversation and if you haven't done so already you can follow us on facebook instagram or twitter at svd P. Lou K. Y.